which is probably why y'all are here. I understand that. Uh, so we'll make sure to end uh, about 10.35 or so. I push a little bit, uh, but 10.35 is the aim. That's why there's only uh, one page here on our outline. But um, let, me, let me pray for us, and then we can begin our, uh, our little discussion of a heavy and big and challenging uh, book worth more than just 30 minutes, but uh, we'll have fun nonetheless. Let's pray. Lord, in our, in our uh, times of suffering, in our trials, our pains, help us to look to you. Now we understand who you are, know who we are, and not pry into things that are too great for us. Lord, give us that contentment, that happiness, that gladness, that joy, that willingness to follow you as you talk to us with what you tell us to go that far and not further. And I pray that you would give us clarity of mind and uh, heart-level love for you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we come in, a, in our kind of survey of the uh, Old Testament wisdom literature. We come to the last week uh, of looking at each individual book. So next week, we're going to be examining uh, one of my favorite questions, which is, how do they all fit together? We've looked at Proverbs a couple of weeks. We looked at Ecclesiastes last week. We're looking at Job this week. Next week, we're going to look at, okay, these are each of the books, but they're all in the same book. They're all in the Bible. How do they go together? How does the message of uh, these books go together. Before we get there, though, we have to look at Job. We come this morning to uh, one of the classic stories in the Bible, likely uh, of a man who was very old, far older, uh, not in age, I mean, but in time, older than Moses, uh, very uh, ancient, not an Israelite. Uh, He's from the East, but he's a man whose story has been talked about by everybody. The philosophers talk about him like Kierkegaard. The psychologists like Carl Jung talk about him. Uh, Christians talk about him. All sorts of people are fascinated with the story of Job. I think rightly so because it's a really challenging story. It's a really difficult text to understand. It seems a little less like wisdom than it does like a hard tale. We're going to come and find this morning that... um, there is, there is great wisdom. I have here, I, I always include structure, but I think it's helpful just to start off with what does this book look like? What is the big book of Job? Because it's so large, it's 42 chapters, all this poetry. What's it doing? What's it doing? And it's basically doing three parts. It's formed into three parts, each, each one of them with a character. Part one is about Job. Not Job, Job. Right? It's about Job. What happened to him? What's his life like? Part two is about his friends. Job and Job's friends, so-called. We'll put that in a little scare quotes. Yeah, very good. And then uh, part three is really about God, I guess, but you could say the answer. And the answer is that I should not use that marker. Part three is the answer to Job's questions. There we go. So Job... Job's friends, and then really God, if you will. Um, Maybe Elihu, we'll get to that uh, on the road. Um, So Job has these three friends, three of them, and then there's this fourth character, Elihu, and we'll discuss him. He's a bit of a weird cat, weird guy, weird cat. Uh, But um, yeah, that's the structure of the book. You'll notice here that in part two, there's a series of speeches that the three guys speak, and then... Every time they speak, Job responds. So it's almost like kind of 
either a conversation. Uh, on the one hand, it feels like a conversation you might have, uh, an intense conversation, an intervention you might have with friends. On the other hand, it feels like a trial. It feels like an interrogation. And so this happens three times. These guys get up and they speak. Uh, but in the third time, Job has so convincingly answered his friend Zophar that Zophar didn't talk. Zophar's like, wow, I don't really have any answer to this one. And that kind of moves into the last section. So it's important to kind of get a grip on what is a long book, what can seem confusing. One of the hooks to help you understand it is a lot of it is response. One guy speaks, Eliphaz speaks, Job responds. Bildad speaks, Job responds. Zophar speaks, Job responds. You start it all over again. And like any good story, you don't just do it once. I mean, you've told your kids stories. I've been told stories by my grandparents when I was younger, uh, you know, about uh, Mr. Squirrel. I've been told stories about the, the barn owls. And my grandfather was very good at saying, well, you don't just tell a story quickly. One of the points that we have here is that Job is a very long book. Job is 42 chapters. If I were to ask you how deeply you've read the book of Job in your personal devotions, how easy has it been? I almost guarantee you it's not been easy. It's not been something you're really excited and jazzed. It's on the Gospels. It's not something you're really kind of jazzed about reading uh, because it sounds similar and it's a long book. Why is it a long book? Well, it's a long book because this is what God has given. Part of the understanding of why is Job wisdom how is Job a wisdom book, is that God makes it uh, lengthy. God lengthens the book. He lengthens the book because this is not, there's a very common way of looking at the book of Job from an academic, nerdy point of view that says, it's all about this question, why do the righteous suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did the righteous, Job is a righteous man, he's an upright man. And one of the big things folks love to say about the book of Job is that it's about this question of evil. Why do the righteous suffer? I want you to go home today and understand at very minimum, that's not really the question of the book of Job. It's not really the major question the book of Job is raising. It's not raising simply the question of why do the righteous suffer, but it's, it's raising the question of how do the righteous live in a suffering world? How do the righteous live in a world of suffering? How do the righteous live in a world where God does nothing to put things right half the time? How do Christians live? How do you live in a world where bad things happen to you and you don't have the answers? And there are ways to ask that question that can come from the armchair. There are ways of asking this question, how do the righteous live, from the armchair is a fun intellectual exercise. Sit down with somebody and say, huh, I wonder why do bad things happen to so-and-so? That's interesting. But Job wants us, and God wants us to ask them from the wheelchair. He wants you to, be, to ask them as you are suffering. Job is not a book about, for academics. It's a book for people who know suffering. It's a book for people who know pain. It's a book that's honest about what people actually say actually think. And that, that's why one of the questions I have here is, what kind of world do we live in? We live in a world that is staggeringly hurtful. 
We live in a world filled with trials. We live in a world of pain. And Job is a book that says, I know that pain. I know the way the world actually is. I know the way the world actually works. The book of Job is therefore a fireball book. It is not, it is not a philosophical book meant to answer your speculation. It's meant to be read in the hospital. It's meant to be read in the tragedy of life, at the funeral. That's when Job is meant to be read the best. Um, second, <clears throat> Job's friends expose the two false gospels that are swamping our world. There really are two major false teachings that are, uh, everybody loves today. And one I think we're aware of, one we're very aware of, uh, because it mostly affects people who aren't us. One we're very aware of because it mostly affects people who are not in America. It mostly affects the developing world. I have a friend of mine who went to uh, uh, Africa on a kind of a, a summer mission trip, and he, he, he told me that the, the churches there had, had weird names, like way weirder than ours. They don't have like first, you know, Baptist or whatever. Here are the names. The Winner's Chapel. Because you're a winner if you go there. Divine Call Bible Church. The slogan, excellence and power. Because if you go there, you're going to be able to call power down. The Redeemed Evangelical Mission Power Word, in all caps. How to speak a word that gets you power and influence. The message is not that we are apostolic scum. The message is that Christians are beautiful winners. This is why in, in Ghana, I'm told that the uh, wedding vows have been changed. The wedding vows are now for better and for best, for richer and for richest, if you're a Christian. Because the idea that you can be a poor Christian is totally out of the realm of understanding. The idea that you could have a worse time as a Christian is almost impossible. And that is, as you may well know, that is one of the key complaints that the so-called friends, but really the miserable comforters, the friends of Job, come to him. Job, in chapter 1, in the prologue, is under trial. I don't have time to get into all the questions about God and Satan. Suffice to say that Satan plays his role well as the accuser. He comes into heaven. And I don't have time to answer the question, why is Satan in heaven? How can that be? How can it be heaven? We can chat about that afterwards. But Satan's in heaven. He accuses uh, Job, and really he accuses and imputes to God this real question, does, does God, does Job serve God for nothing, right? Is Job simply here, uh, this is verse 9, does Job fear God for no reason? You've put a hedger, you've protected him. In other words, the prosperity gospel. No wonder Job loves you. Satan believes that God's gospel is a prosperity gospel. He says, hey, you're just here. He's just loving you because you've done nice things for him. That's it. And that's what Job's friends generally, I, don't, I can't get into all that. That's what Job's friends generally think. Their argument is, hey, Job, you're suffering because you've sinned. There is some causal link. There's some link between your sin and your suffering. What have you done? And so they're asking him, what have you done? You, you must really have done something bad. That's their assessment of the situation. And yet, it goes deeper than simply prosperity. Eventually, they get to the second. And I think for us, the way more dangerous false gospel. They, they transition from a prosperity gospel 
into a therapeutic gospel. What happens when you have all the money? And we have all the money as Americans. What happens when you have uh, uh, health? What happens when you have kids? What happens when you're happily married? What happens when things are good? What happens to the prosperity gospel when you're already prosperous like most of us? It transforms. It metamorphosizes. It changes like a virus into the therapeutic gospel. It changes into what is really the gospel of our day. Um, and it's this. If I feel empty, go to Jesus and I'll be filled. It's no longer objective goods. Money, wife, kids, love, relationship. It, now it is something that's subjective. I feel depressed. Are you depressed? Are you grieving? Come to Jesus. He'll make you feel better. It becomes subjective. You feel aimless in life. You don't have purpose. You don't have meaning in life. You don't like your job in life. You feel like you, you need, just need something better. Jesus can give you purpose. I mean, that's what I was told in youth group. Jesus will give you purpose. He'll help you out. I mean, this is what the, um, this is what the company do now. The, the company, you know, the, the, I, I got a mailer from the, what is it, uh, Georgia Power. I'm sorry, Jim. Got a mailer, mailer from Georgia Power. Um, and they said, hey, uh, rate our service. Did our service make you feel good? I don't care if it felt good. I want the electricity. But the assumption is that you, you know, the, the electrical service that is provided must make me feel a certain way. That's a therapeutic gospel. It's, it's by and large the greatest thing that we have going for us in America. Um, and the book of Job attacks that head on. It attacks that head on. So what kind of church, what kind of Christians do you want? You should not want Christians who are miserable comforters, who say you're not feeling well and you're not prosperous because you're a sinner. It's not the kind of Christianity we want. Um, but I guess the, the supreme question here you have it on the outline is what kind of Savior do we need? Or what kind of man do we need? I think this is vital um, because <clears throat> it's significant in the opening here that Job is described as living, verse 1, in the land of Uz. There's a man in the land of Uz, a man from Uz, a man in the land far, far east, a man far, far away, a man in the land of Uz. Why is that important? Because he's not an Israelite. He's not in the, he's not in the land of promise. He's outside of the covenant people. Therefore, he is, in some great sense, everybody. He's a representative of the redeemed. In fact, it's really helpful to compare Job to Adam. Job is given this great test like Adam was given a great test. He was given a great test with Satan involved. Satan instigated a test in the garden. Adam failed that test. Perfect. We're told here in the first verse that Job's upright. Job is as good as you can be in these days. But the first man, Adam, who represented all of us, sinned against God. And here we have Job who describes himself, Job 7, 21, 9, 28, and following. He says, oh, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. He says this, <clears throat> Job 14, 1, man born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. He acknowledges the doctrine of original sin. By his own admission, he is not like Adam. Moreover, his test is not in paradise. It's in the desert. He gets stripped of everything. It's ta everything taken away from him. He's not in a garden like Adam. He was taunted by his wife, not loved by Eve. He's oppressed by disease. 
He's not healthy. He is condemned by his closest friends. He utters his death wish, but what is striking is that Job never curses God. In all of this, Job never curses God. Adam, in the pristine purity of fresh creation, failed. But Job, with everything against him, succeeded. Ultimately, he is vindicated. Satan has been defeated. And in this, we see we see a picture of our Savior, don't we? Where did Christ come? He did not come into a happy-go-lucky unicorn and flower land. He did not come into a pristine, healthy, hot, you know, bed where, where there's no hospitals, there's no sickness. He did not come into great society. He came into low society. He did not even come prosperous like Job did. He actually went lower than Job. And he was tested by Satan. You know this. Of course, officially tested in the temptation, but really all the time tested. From Herod all the way on to Pilate. Pictures of the dragon. Servants of Satan trying to kill the sinless one. And Christ himself, even better than Job, never curses the Lord. He never has to repent. I suppose, given our time limitations, I'm going to turn to one of the climactic points of the book of Job, which is chapter 42. I have it there at the top of your handout because it really is one of the key verses, questions. I've translated it differently than the ESV here, but uh, 42.6. Therefore, I despise myself, or I retract my words, I change my mind, and repent in dust and ashes. So Job here admits, at the very least, he admits some failing. What is the failing? It's in 42.3. Really, 42.1-6 is Job's great confession. Careful here. He does not confess any sin in terms of uh, you know, um, any, any evil that he's done. His confession is not to say, um, I have done some evil action. His sin, rather is to confess critically that he has been, in a sense, um, too presumptuous. His sin is that he has been too arrogant. His sin, and really the the key for us, is to assume that God owes us explanations. This is why in verse 3 he says, I have uttered things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. You see, Job's failure, if there's a failure here, is to try to be God. Job's failure at this point is, is not in any sin that he's committed in terms of any evil action, any uh, lack of faith beyond this. I have tried to get to the bottom of the question, why do the righteous suffer? And that's why this book is not about evil. It's not really about, it's not a philosophical exercise on why does evil happen. It's a question of how do the righteous live when they don't know all things? Which, by the way, is our condition. You don't know all things. I don't know all things. You don't know why life's happened to you the way it's happened to you. You don't know why it's going to happen to you in the future. You just don't know that because you're not God. And so the great 
the great climax here is Job. After God comes in these beautiful words, these beautiful images, um, God, God says, 41.1, can you draw a Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you press down his tongue with a cord? Can you uh, put a rope in his nose? And so on and so forth. Can you fill his skin with harpoons? You know, if you think about Moby Dick, uh, Melville had to have read the book of Job. He had to have read this section. You know, that's Moby Dick, right? What, what is Captain Ahab's great problem? He, he, needs, he needs to kill the whale. He needs the whale. Um, and that, I suppose, leads us into a separate point to make about the book of Job. Is that, the Job that Job is filled with poetry. Job is filled with, by one commentator's count, over 600 figures of speech. That's why we don't like it, because we don't know poetry. We don't, we, we don't like this book. Because it takes time. It takes time to consider what does this one image mean. This is wisdom. In suffering and trial, you need to take time to consider what is God trying to say. And our problem is we want pat answers. Because we live in a therapeutic world that pretends to give self-help pat answers, false gospels, we assume that when we come to church, we can get false answers that are pretty quick. But the problem is, let me just give you some, some examples here of the images. This is just from one speech early on. A barren womb, darkened morning stars, a door slammed shut, peaceful sleep, captives freed from the slave driver, a search for hidden treasure, plowing, sowing, reaping, a lion without teeth, a lioness without teeth, a secret whisper, a house of clay, a moth that's transient, a tent with ropes pulled up, sparks of a fire flying upward. I could even go on. There's a whole paragraph here. Um, but the point is, these figures of speech are not disposable. We want, to, we want to throw them in the trash can because they're challenging to think through. And then you get in a trial, and what do you do? You start blasting everybody in sight. You start blasting God. Job never blasts God. That's striking, isn't it? Right? His blast is, his only real blast is, what? himself. Yeah. I, I want to die. I want to die. Job has that level of trust in God. And part of the reason why, I have to believe, part of the reason why God gives us 42 chapters is that you and I need to think far more than we do about trials. Um, <clears throat> so, let me, let me have a, a couple of comments here. A little bit scattershot because of the, um, the nature of our time. But let me, let me address a couple of issues that come up in the book. Let me first look at, and this is not on your outline, um, the question of this figure, Elihu. This figure, Elihu, appears, you can see it in the structure, he appears late on in the book. He appears, um, you know, beginning in chapter 30, 32. He comes out of nowhere. He's, he's the young guy. And a lot of folks kind of question, hey, who's Elihu? Uh, some come here to say, you know, this guy Elihu is really a... Um, a newbie. He's naive. He's young. He's silly. Therefore, he's wrong. Um, and yet, what is Elihu's great, great charge against Job? Elihu brings a different charge against Job. He says, Job, you have been trying to self-justify. He says, Job, you've really been trying to justify yourself before God. You've been trying to prove I'm an upright person instead of asking, instead of proving that God has been just. Is he right? 
Yes, he's right. Elihu's right. Let me, let me show that to you in a second here. If you look at, you don't have time to do it right now, but look at Job 32.2, where Elihu says, Elihu's angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. Compare that to uh, 40, verse 8, where God speaks this time. And what does God say? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Now, Job has been right when he speaks about God. But in all of his conversation with his three friends up to this point, he's been trying to justify himself. The point is simply this. uh, Elihu's anger is like God's anger. And it's striking that in, in 33... Chapter 33, when he speaks, verses 8 to 11, he quotes Job's words back to him, and Job remains silent. Just like what God does. When God shows up, God appears. Job remains silent. Job is ultimately silent at the the end. The point simply is that Elihu, if you want to put it this way, is kind of like a John the Baptist to God showing up. He's a prophet. He's a preview of what God is going to do with Job. In the end, he's, um, he, he sees the chastening of God in a redemptive context. He anticipates God. And Elihu says, and this is one of the big points of the whole book of Job, that the mysteriousness of God, the fact that you don't know everything about your life, is not just a great and scary thing. It's also a gracious thing. I'll repeat that because it's so important. Um, the book of Job points out to us that... <clears throat> God speaks to the afflicted. God speaks to you when you're in trial. God speaks to you when you're suffering. And he does so not, um, and he, he doesn't give you all the information, not only because he's God and you're not, but because he's thinking about you. He's trying to be gracious to you. He's trying to care for you. It's not just that you can't handle the truth, all the truth. It's that all the truth would actually hurt you. It wouldn't be gracious and kind to you. And God is actually more concerned about being gracious to you in your trial. I'll, I'll, I'll quote D.A. Carson. I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm on a D.A. Carson kick these last couple of weeks, but D.A. Carson says this. Commentators too often assume God should give us explanation rather than being worshipped and trusted. We assume that God should explain to me why something happened instead of being worshipped and trusted. And Elihu really points that out. Elihu... Uh, crucially points that out. Let me proceed here now to one of the great statements that we have um, in the whole book. You probably know it. That's Elihu. Any questions on, on Elihu or anything we covered before we uh, hit this one place and then wrap up? Greg. How so? 37, 23, and 24. Well, I'm not, I, I will say, I'm, I'm not necessarily seeing that. Um, he's saying, this is 37, 14, for example. Hear this, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his command upon them, and so on and so forth? Which is what God's going to say to him. God's going to say to Job, hey, uh, look at my works. Look at my creation. Can you, you know, do all these things I do? No, you can't. Um, and so I, I would actually say that, that, that Elihu is, 
you know, he's he, he's not, I, I'm not sure he, he would fall away, but maybe for the sake of time, Greg, you can look up what you're uh, thinking about and we can chat about it. That's all right afterwards. Um, let's hit Job 19 briefly, if we can. <clears throat> this is a classic statement. If there's one verse that you know from the book of Job, it's in Job 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives. 1925-27. Let me just uh, briefly cover in a couple of minutes these this classic statement here. Um, <clears throat> For I know that my Redeemer lives. Let me go through it. Job says, I know. That means Job has certainty. Despite all his calamities, he knows. He knows that his kinsman redeemer, really, not his redeemer, his kinsman redeemer lives. This defender, this vindicator, this one who is to come, this one who exists right now even, lives forever. And he says, there's nobody else out there. I don't have any kinsmen left. They're all dead. So who must this kinsman be? It has to be God himself. And if you read through it, you have this weird picture of God being the judge and yet God also being the redeemer. And we see that he says in verse 25, at the last, at that last day, on the last judgment, on the dust of my grave, on the dust he will stand. That's the literal Hebrew there. Not stand upon the earth, but stand upon the dust, really. And that's a critical point that Job brings out here, is that when, when you're suffering, one of, the, one of the arguments that people have against the book of Job is that God's really so distant from you. He's this mighty judge. He's this powerful God. He's up in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's not really in your trials. He's so far away. So far away. No, he's not. No, he's not. This shows right here that God's not living in some magic ghosty land way up there, but he's in the dust. He's in the muck. He's in the mire. He's on the earth. He's in the real world. Job acknowledges he, he will die. His flesh, his skin will be destroyed. And yet he says, my flesh, I will see God in my flesh. So he confirms that flesh will die. And yet he says, I believe that there will be a holistic, entire, psychosomatic body and soul and mind. There will be an encounter with God that I will have all of me and all of him. When I shall see, whom I shall see, not a stranger, not some random person, Nobody else can stand in my place in that last day. I will be there. You'll be there too. And then he says, my, my heart faints. That is, my, my, all that I am cries out. Cries out to be with God. Um, the point is, friends, we see here an anticipation of bodily resurrection. Anticipation, but not just proving a doctrine, but the reality that in your suffering, in the hard times, in the trials, what do you long for? What ought you to long for? Being with God. Being with Him. Let me give you five things that the uh, book of Job tells you as we conclude. Five, five things the book of Job tells you about, uh, about life. Again, it does not tell you why do the righteous suffer. It, it does affirm that God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. At the very end, you get to that. Right, God rewards Job. You get through, through all the chapters. God rewards Job. The faithful servants of God will be There is a reward here. Um, but let me give you five ways this book tells us how to puzzle well. My wife loves puzzles. 
I don't like puzzles. I think you'll probably know that by now. Um, but you all, all of us have to puzzle. There are things in our lives we have to puzzle about. And this book helps us to puzzle over them well. Life brings mysteries that you cannot understand fully. So how do we do that? How do we do that well? First, uh, we should not try to compare sins. We should not try to say uh, this degree of sin is worse than this degree of sin. Therefore, I'm suffering. I did a really bad thing. Therefore, I'm suffering. Job is the most righteous guy in the universe. And what happened to him? He suffered the most. Greater severity actually may indicate greater grace. Greater severity of sin may actually indicate greater grace. If you think about the way your life has worked out, when have you sought the Lord the most? That's been in the hard times. It's His grace to come to you in suffering and to call you back to Himself. Mercy can cover over that multitude of sins, but if you don't think you're sinning, if you're in a great place, you don't receive the grace. Second, as you puzzle, like Job, we are not to accuse God of wrongdoing or injustice in how He treats sin. We are not to assume that there is a correlation between sin and suffering. We're also not to assume there's never a correlation between sin and suffering. There may be. You know, so is, is COVID a judgment upon the world? I have no idea. You don't either. It may be, it may not. I don't think that's a really helpful question to ask. It may be, it may not. I don't know if we can answer that question. Because we're not God. That's the point of Job. That's the point of Job. It may very well be. You may find out, yes, at the end it is. You may find out. There's not a specific sin. Did somebody in China sin, sin really badly and so we're, we're, we're all have COVID now? I don't, I don't know. Probably not, but I don't know. Third, <clears throat> understand that behind suffering, behind all of your experiences, there is something cosmic working out. There's something big, something galactic, something universal, something redemptive, something incredible. The purposes of God in the life of Job are not just for Job. We know that because it's in the Bible and you're reading it right now. We're talking about it right now. Job's life impacted billions of people that he would have no idea about. Um, and the purposes of God towards the fallen creation focus on consummate redemption of the whole universe. In the words of Revelation, he does make all things new. And what happens in your life is aimed at that. Fourth, we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We are to be content that he is working out all things. That often hastily quoted, misquoted, he is working out all things for good for those who love him. All right, that's why Job says, the Lord gave, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, which is also a verse we know thanks, thanks, thanks to uh, praise and worship songs now. Job 121. Right, that the perspective we have to have. God gives, God takes away. Lastly, recognize the worst suffering you have is only earthly. The worst life you could ever have is a temporary life. As uh, Scripture says, as Lewis famously quoted, we have a light momentary affliction. Light momentary affliction. People may mock you and say, why do you believe in a world after life, the world to come? I saw a poll that said, I don't know how accurate it is, a poll that said that, that most of Europe... Uh, 39% of people only believe that uh, there's an afterlife. Not even a Christian thing, it's a general afterlife. I um, don't know how accurate that is, but the point is, folks can mock you. 
but that hope remains a universal and ultimate reality. Uh, Job's expression of hope in a future resurrection and his hope for vindication before God. You want to be vindicated before God? You can't minimize that. So, long and short of it is, as you puzzle about what your life's doing, about where you are today, about what's going to happen in the future, you don't know, I don't know. As you puzzle about, well, what's God doing in my life? What's, what have you done in my life? Remember these things, but ultimately recall uh, the key of the book of Job. This is the quote I have at the bottom by Meredith Klein, who is a guy, not a gal. Uh, he was. He's, uh, he was a great artist. He said this, glad consecration, come what may, to the covenant Lord. It is about our faithful service to our God, even when you lie in the garbage dump in the wilderness. I suppose I'll close on that. Um, if you have questions, you can talk to me in donut time. Um, Martin, if you wouldn't mind closing us in prayer, thank you so much.